You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicholas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guests today are Jenny Dunn. Hello. Jonathan Young. Hello. Andres Velasquez. Hello. And Maureen O'Hagan. Hello. Jenny and Jonathan are founders of NMT Automatics, a theatre company which specialises in updating ancient myths for modern audiences. Maureen and Andres are working with them as director and dramaturg on their latest production, Tempest Fugit, Troy and Us, a play which weaves together a pair of ancient and modern war stories. The Visualising War Project has been working with NMT Automatics for over a year. Together with our colleague John Hesk, who directs the St. Andrews Center for the Public Understanding of Greek and Roman Drama, we've been feeding into their research and development of Tempus Fugit, and we've learned so much along the way about the challenges and choices that theater makers wrestle with when dramatizing war for the stage. In fact, Jenny, Jonathan Andres and Maureen contributed to a workshop which the Visualizing War Project recently ran for theater, film and documentary makers looking at habits of dramatizing war on stage and screen. And that's one of the things that we want to ask them about today. What aspects of war tend to get represented on stage and why? But we'll also be diving deep into their play, Tempest Fugit, to think a bit about the impact that war stories from long ago still have today and how past narratives of war can be used to help audiences reflect in new ways on modern conflicts. So we've got a lot to talk about. Um, let's get going with Jenny and Jonathan. Perhaps you can start us off by explaining the background to Tempest Fugit. Where did the idea for the play come from? Um, and can you just give our listeners a sense of what the play's about? Sure. A couple of years ago now, we were looking at deciding what our next project would be. And we originally thought of kind of doing a comedy based on Hercules, Hercule and Lee. And then um, as it happened, we were contacted, I think, first by the British Museum, where we previously performed an extract of Aeneas's travels around Sicily. And we were asked whether or not we had anything from the Iliad or the Odyssey, because that could be performed as part of their upcoming Troy exhibition. And at the time we didn't, and we were like, oh, okay, well, we don't, but I'm sure we, we can. So then we started kind of looking into that. At the same time, and pretty much the same time, we were contacted by John Hesk, um, who invited us to come and talk to them, to come up to St. Andrews and have a conversation about our projects and the work that we do, and also about the Centre for the Public Understanding of Greek and Roman Drama to see whether or not we, had, we could work on something together. And so we went up there and had a fantastic kind of weekend meeting John and the other members of the class department. And... We kind of came to the conclusion that and by this point, yeah, that we would work on something from the Iliad. We particularly were actually interested in book six and Hector and Andromache because we felt very much that the Hector and Andromache story, it resonated with us as a couple, this conversation whereby uh, she tells him she doesn't wish him to go off to war and he does. And we know that, of course, he doesn't come back from there and dealing with that love and loss with what seems to be quite a human couple, even though this is kind of in the ancient world. 
So that's what we were kind of like first kind of taken with. And it was decided that, yeah, that we would work on this project alongside um, the classics department. Yeah, we met Alice in that first period, didn't we? And we kind of like further decided that that would be the project to kind of go upon. So, yeah, so having started at this point where we were interested in the characters of Hector and Andromache, we were also interested in those two because we wanted it to be a piece that would just involve myself and Jonathan. So then we started developing it based around their relationship and wanted to find the modern relevance to their relationship and so created this idea of a modern military couple as a parallel. And at first it was quite a disparate um, parallel. So we had the modern couple and the ancient couple who were kind of the same, but also different. And eventually through various stages of R&D, we came up with the idea that the show is principally about the modern military couple. They're called Alec and B. And in fact, at the moment, we're at a stage where we really want to explore B, especially. And, and the way the show is going is that it's looking at her struggles as a military wife and what that involves and what a military wife has to endure and how her life looks like. Obviously, we see a lot about Alec as well, because inevitably that is always going to have a huge impact on a modern military wife. And so their lives are the centre of the show. And what happens is we see B tune in to a radio play, which is a rendition of the Iliad, of a focus on the Hector and Andromache story. And throughout the play, she listens to that and she finds within it parallels to her own life. So she finds within the story of Andromache, her own trauma and her own sense of grief and foreboding, and also parallels between Alec as an officer in the British military and Hector and what that involves, responsibilities um, and sort of the duty versus family. And so at the moment, the play takes us through their relationship. So Alec and B meeting at university, moving to the patch, the military patch, and then him going on his first tour to Afghanistan. And we basically see a series of vignettes of what it is for them to, to live through these farewells, these reunions, good times, bad times, and, and ultimately what it is to, to love and to lose, really, and how B connects with that via the radio play, which is Tempest Fugit, which is the rendition of the Iliad. So you started off by being asked by the British Museum to produce a play based around this ancient text, Homer's Iliad. You focused in on book six, the bit where the story of Hector and Andromache really, really features this couple who end up, you know, Hector ends up being killed in the Trojan War. But it's become a play that's very much more about actually a modern military couple. And you're using that ancient story as a way to visualise, in a sense, what war is like across the ages. Absolutely. I think this question of visualising war and, and of course our involvement with you and your project has really helped us find focus for the modern couple and it really features in the play and as much as, you know, B wonders all the time what must Alec be doing while he's away and and we see sort of her own imagination play out. Oh, is he, is he, you know, running across the fields, ramboing versus the reality of him, in fact, just sort of waiting around in a harsh desert landscape. And also the comparison between the visualization of Hector as this ancient, proud, royal hero and her own husband who, who comes back to her and, and who doesn't always tell her much. It seems to be in the military culture that there's really 
perhaps not with all families, but with a lot of the people that we've spoken to and interviewed, there's a reluctance for the serving person to really go into much detail about what they've experienced while on tour. So the person who remains at home is really in the dark a lot about what they've experienced and what they've seen. And obviously that has a huge impact on their relationship. Can I just ask a, um, a couple of follow-up questions on that? The first question that I had was, so obviously we know where the ancient part comes from. You said that's that's inspired by the Iliad. So I was just wondering, where does the modern part of the story come from? Did you have a specific inspiration for the modern couple as well? And also I was wondering, can you tell us a bit more about the importance of this dialogue between ancient and modern? I'd be quite interested in hearing a bit more about how they sort of elucidate each other. As we did more research around the project, certain kind of key books kind of came into our focus. One of them being Achilles in Vietnam by Jonathan Shea and Odysseus in America, and then also Vietnam Wives as well. And very much directly linking the experience of the soldier, particularly in this case in Vietnam, and what that is to the story of Achilles. And that being with the Iliad is the tragedy of Achilles, the tragedy of somebody, a soldier with a certain sense of honor and through betrayal from his commanders. And then also the loss of his best friend goes into a berserk state whereby he ends up, of course, desecrating Hector's body, which is an affront to the gods as much as anything else. And watching that kind of transformation. And in this book, there's lots of testimonies from soldiers who've obviously experienced this type of thing. And it kind of led us down, I guess, a path of looking into the experience of PTSD and the returning soldier and how difficult it is for soldiers to return to civilian life. As a consequence, again, as we moved, shifted kind of the, the play towards that, it meant that the character of Alec was therefore inspired kind of by Achilles, but also we looked at Ajax as well and his particular, yeah, his particular story and his, I guess, downfall and, and eventual suicide. And that seemed to have kind of an influence. So in fact, what you kind of had was this Hector Andromache ancient narrative at this point with the overall Iliad there imprinted into the, uh, the modern couple. As we continue researching, we started talking to obviously more people and doing interviews, um, interviews with military couples and, uh, and officers and soldier and partners. And we also realized that Maureen here, who is a longtime friend of, of Jenny's, was not only somebody who's a specialist in Greek and Roman drama and the classics, but is also somebody who's, who's been a partner. Speaking to these different people has, has then given us a lot more kind of understanding about what actually the lives of a modern military couple might actually look like. Yeah, I mean, I think just to add to that, there's been many, many texts, volumes, films, uh, articles that have fed into the creation of the modern couple the Theatre of War is another book, Emma Bridges' volume based on this comparison between ancient and military wives, a collection of short stories by Sophie Fallon, I think it's called You Know When the Men Are Gone. We've been watching war films, classic and modern, and seeing how the visualisations within those films feed into our own perception of, of the reality of what it is to be a military couple. Um, we were watching the Military Wives film, also the Gareth Malone Military Wives Choir series. And yeah, so I think all of this research, this reading, this watching together with these interviews is ultimately what has created Alec and B. It's certainly allowed for us to kind of have a more authentic, I would say, or truthful pool of, of knowledge to, of which to then be able to improvise around scenes. And, and certainly, and again, something we'll probably talk about is the style of, of the style that's within the piece. But a lot of dialogue has come from improvisations, but that's improvisations have been very much informed by 
these conversations that we've had with people. And before that, as a consequence, this latest development now has been far more, we've found that type of, I guess, discovery a lot easier than we did last year when we were developing and, and trying to do a similar thing, but um, without necessarily having had that direct contact with people's experiences. So a lot of research goes into this, but also in a way you could say the, the modern couple um, comes out of the ancient material initially and then takes on a life of its own that's then substantiated, developed through this additional research, the reading, the, you know, the, the, the films. It's really quite interesting to see how these, uh, these characters become more plastic and take on their lives out of the work that you're doing as, as part of the background research for the play. I think we'll want to come back a bit to the points you raised just at the end there, Jonathan, about authenticity and how you achieve that. But first, it would be great to bring Maureen in. Maureen, like Jenny, you've got a background in classics and ancient history. Um, and you also you run a film company, Barefaced Greek, which specializes in staging ancient Greek drama. Um, so maybe you could talk a bit about what you think ancient stories of war bring to our modern understanding of it. Well, I think that was a really interesting kind of idea you were just talking about, Nicholas, about using the ancient characters first and then sort of helping to flesh out the modern ones. And I think in this particular context, the ancient characters are really helpful for f fleshing out modern human experience. And in terms of the military, I suppose if you join the military, you're joining on the imagination of what might come next. And if you're partnering someone in the military, you kind of sign up for something you're not fully able to visualize, although your life will change as a result of it. So you do then need to turn to something to give you an impression of what that world might be like. And obviously war films, TV shows are, are examples of things like that. Whilst there are plenty of war movies, <laughs> particularly kind of American action hero movies that show intense moments of drama, um, you know, intensely heroic scenarios or tragic or, or whatever that show the peak moments of drama and they often have slightly less interesting female explorations of the of the story whereas classics for me also had figures of <laughs> patient suffering which unfortunately I wasn't desperate to identify with but they were there <laughs> and they did help um, you know to have Penelope's Andromache's Electra's Helen's even who are just more fleshed out, even if underrepresented compared with other characters than, than I was seeing around me. You know, whether it's from tragedy or epic, with classics, the characters are so archetypal. And whether it's that they truly embody archetypes that exist or whether we've just come to know them by their names as a figure of what they represent. So we know Hector is the one who does his civic duty, who, who sacrifices the, the, the joy really of his family and his, his personal experience with them to do the right thing. Whereas Paris is the person who lives the life he wants, has the relationships he wants and neglects his. We know these names and these characters and they stand there as things that we can turn to, look at, see bits of ourselves reflected back in and sort of understand ourselves better through what we know them to represent. So it's really interesting to hear you say that speaking across centuries and centuries, the Iliad was all resonating with you and um, giving you, as you say, these archetypes, these models of different human experience and different human responses to war, male and female, 
which helped you better visualize this extraordinary world and which perhaps helps soldiers as well visualize and civilians too visualize this extraordinary world of war which for most of us even if we're in the military we understand more through storytelling than through direct hands-on experience. Being a military partner particularly in a country and a time where it's quite an unusual thing to do it's not the norm it's not every wife's experience I, I found quite an isolating one really and a lot of what you feel has to be internalized and, and how you process it has to be internalized because there is an expectation really of not being too expressive being quite in control and, and helping others by setting an example of calmness and confidence to everyone's benefit and obviously being at drama school and doing an English degree was quite <laughs> a contrasting culture um, for that. But a lot of the processing, I suppose, has to be done about with what you what you think about, what you imagine inside your head and reading ancient texts and even looking at, for example, um, I had been really interested in Shakespeare for a long time. but I'd often found a lot of the female speeches in Shakespeare very boring and I saw whiny because there's so many kind of why won't you tell me what's going on why won't you tell me what this dream means you know but actually I understand what it's like to be sort of kept out of something you're not really part of trying to imagine what it's like and really really want to be let in so it was looking backwards through time I think where I found other examples um, of, of people who could maybe help me understand a little bit what I was feeling it was the Military Wives Choir, the TV series, not the film that I was I was watching back then. It was the kind of drama. You know, these things help to give you little insights, but they're also not your life. I mean, I'm not Penelope and I don't want to be alone for 20 years, for, you know, living a really, really tough life. I want to live my own life. And it was only recently that I sort of reconstituted my, my take on classics, which was... I could identify as the Odysseus of my own life rather than the Penelope, the Andromache, the supporting role. I guess the, the, the key thing really is this sort of engagement. What's coming out of this is the importance of these classical texts, ancient texts, but also, of course, you know, some modern texts as uh, at the interface of where our thoughts and the, the processes of the way in which we sort of conceive of how we should be acting, how we want to be acting, where, where all of these things come together. And it, it looks to me like this, what's what's interesting for us here is to hear this, to hear about this engagement at the heart of, of exactly this process, this sort of feedback loop that we are very interested in, the way in which texts then have a concrete impact on who we think we are, um, on helping us figure out how we want to act, what we what we ought to be doing. But it's not a simple process, you know, from 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 A to B. It's a it's 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 a process that it's an often critical engagement um, that's about distance as much as it is about um, about closeness and identification. I think Penelope is a really interesting case in point. It's not who we're focusing on in this play, but personally, she was someone who. I looked at and thought about and felt a sense of identification with a lot. It wasn't necessarily overwhelmingly positive to feel that. I mean, if we look at lots of the stories about women of classics that are coming out now, all the great novels that are surfacing about all these different figures, you know, they're not always very happy experiences. And I think that over-identification with someone, for example, like Penelope, led to me feeling a kind of sense of an inevitable destiny of a kind of 
a sadness and a life of waiting um, that we might also want to let go of and, and look for new role models for. So what we're hearing is essentially that the engagement with these classical texts, the the dialogue between ancient and modern is very complex, happens at very different levels. And um, that's probably a good point to ask Andres, who who was brought in as the director to work on not just directing, but also, you know, have input on bringing the ancient and the modern stories together so as to make them fit. So I was wondering, Andres, could you tell us a bit more about this process, about bringing these various texts? And there are many voices, obviously, because as we were saying earlier, the modern couple comes really out of a a plethora of different material that has gone into them. How did you bring these things together uh, in this play? What has changed? What kind of structural changes did you make? What happened to the characters? Well, an important thing to mention is that I can't take credit for doing that uh, on my own. I think that the process has been very much a, a, a constant collaboration between Jenny, John, and Maureen, and, and myself. And um, we, we, the show keeps tweaking um, and evolving constantly. Um, originally, our, our own visualization of war influenced highly how those characters were portrayed both the classical story and and the contemporary couple. And as we got more informed by all the literature that John and Jenny have mentioned, and also by Alice's work and Emma's work, the stories and those uh, relationships grew richer. And also the background and the layers of the show grew richer, very much informed by those interviews that we had of uh, military couples and also a trauma specialist. And that shaped how those characters were much more tied to a real narrative than to our past visualization of war, which was informed by our own experiences of Hollywood films. Andres, could you just say a bit more? You just mentioned, you know, when you set out developing this play, your representation of the ancient war military couple, Hector and Andromache, and, and your representation of the contemporary military couple, Alec and B, were informed by maybe popular culture more than anything. Can you just tell us a bit about how you were portraying them then and how that has changed since you've done all this research and development? Yeah, I think that intuitively we were portraying them very much based on how we knew military life was then. And it was very much based on TV shows and some books, maybe, at least on my side. And I think that I wasn't really challenging what I was seeing through the improvisations that John and Jenny were doing or the way those relationships were working. And as we learned more about real military life, as we tried to understand more what the usual uh, narratives were, we got more and more interested in challenging our own views. That, And I think the, the proof of that is how the whole process has taken us from telling the story of the trauma of a man into telling the story of the experience of a woman. It's her experience of war, even though she is not a military person, she is suffering from effects and the aftermath of war. And it's very interesting that we have evolved with that to find that different perspective as well. And I think that is also our collective wish to challenge those narratives of audiences that come to see a show expecting to see the usual narrative and then come out with a different perspective. The classic, the classical world and the whole classical narrative became less and less a story. Although B, who Jenny plays, is listening to this radio play, 
that tells the story of Hector and Andromache. Progressively, this story becomes more and more her inner state. So from her listening to a, a, a play that helps her visualize war, we uh, go deeply into her psyche and her feelings and use the play to express what she is feeling and what she is seeing. And that's how we merge those two worlds. So that ties in in many ways with what Maureen was saying about the use of these ancient archetypes that, you know, real life modern military couples, men and women, whether they're serving or whether they're partners, sometimes fall back on to anticipate, imagine, understand the the world they're in, the wars that they are in the middle of experiencing or are about to experience. But what you were saying there, Andres, also resonates with things that have come out from the other podcasts we've been doing, where all sorts of other people, creative artists and novelists and so on, have been looking to expand understanding of war, not just by capturing the suffering of women as well as male soldiers, but actually really identifying the fact that the stories that women tell of war is a very very good way actually to look at that wider picture of war. I think that brings us back neatly to Jenny and Jonathan and, and something you were saying about authenticity. You've done a huge amount of research, you've talked to real soldiers, you've talked to military partners in an effort really to make sure that what you are putting on stage resonates, is has an authenticity about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about your potential audience, what you think they are wanting from the show, what you think they might be expecting, and how you are trying to produce a play that, that resonates with them, perhaps challenges, sort of meets expectations as well as perhaps stretching expectations? Absolutely. So there's a question of whether or not this year or maybe another year we're going to be working with Army at the Fringe in Edinburgh and if so we are guaranteed that some of our first audience members may well be military. We're also doing workshops with you Alice obviously with um, with civilian community but also military so foremost we wanted to create a show that is enlightening, inspiring for not only a civilian but also for the military something that they could identify with but something that a civilian could equally find moving and truthful to their own experiences perhaps not of the army life but of grief of loss of trauma but we also didn't want to offend or to criticize a world that we you know have relatively little experience and knowledge of and doing the workshop with you the other day Alice where we asked a theatrical world what was the traditional viewpoint we get in films or theatre productions about war and things kept popping up things like uh, brotherhood sort of male heroism but also things like PTSD and it's an interesting one because in some ways PTSD is done a lot but in other ways it's still taboo in many respects and you know the military world there's still this sort of fight to make it a more acceptable thing to talk about but then at the same time we interviewed an officer who said that the military hate it when they see PTSD presented but then obviously I'm sure you'd get veterans who have experienced it who are hugely grateful for any sort of portrayal of it that makes it that normalizes it so we wanted trauma to be part of the show without it being the real crux of the matter. Also this question of women and gender roles, and we definitely didn't want it to be a male show about men, but at the same time, the military world is gendered and a military wife's life is always going to be 
shaped and dictated by what her husband does because it's such a marriage really you don't just marry the man you do marry the military we want to challenge stereotypes but at the same time we want to show the reality of of what those stereotypes are um and of, of how hard it is really to be a military wife in a modern world you know for someone who wants to be feminist and independent but has to live where her husband works and has to take a career that suits her husband's you know job and maybe even sacrifices her own dream of a career because they're moving around there there's some of the the main points that we wanted to challenge but also that you can't help but look at within a show that deals with the military yeah just add to that and something for something that Jenny said just in terms of you know when the Iliad or the other kind of classics when they were written and obviously the audience that they were written for was an audience that intuitively kind of knew what the finer details of what these stories were talking about you know and something like the Iliad that kind of goes into that really focuses in on particularly lots of different characters and names and tells a little bit about their story and goes into the, goes into obviously war and the decisions that lead to the effects of the decision the consequences of the actions of certain people that end up leading to tragedy or to difficulty. Um, you know, they, they were written for people from militarized societies and were shown for people to kind of have, for them to be able to understand themselves, to be able to look and see these reflections and to be able to go, to, okay, to get somewhere and able to process some of the experiences that they would have been going through. And I think now is because we seem to be away from that, they're the ancient classics, it's kind of the heroism or the ideals that are kind of there that have been built up. Perhaps you'll take it on the face value. Didn't just see, let's say, the heroism of Achilles or, or Odysseus and not question some of those things. And I think it's interesting now, obviously, doing a play or a modern play that's kind of based around that, which is really looking at ideas about heroism and what it means and trying to create something that enlightens people, that seeks to kind of ask them to kind of question some of the assumptions that they do make how best to do that and bring it in an entertaining way that actually kind of creates some kind of change. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the phrase visualising war, I think has added a huge amount to this process because it asks a lot about the relationship between the military and the theatrical world which have always been very interrelated like Jonathan was saying, you know, you had lots of classics looking at war but it's interesting, although obviously the Iliad had lots of who speared whom and who sent who to the shadows, it also has a lot which is actually more about the argument between a commander and someone who's got skill, who's working beneath him, or, you know, Andromache leaving the wall with many a parting glance, which just sums up exactly that internal anguish that's going on. Or the dramas themselves look often at the psychological complexities around um, a life that's involving murder or something like that rather than showing a lot of the drama was relayed by messengers rather than being on stage classical drama looks a lot at the psychology and I think modern drama loves army stuff you know you watch a drama workshop or a drama school experience people love pretending to be soldiers it's so easy to access high dramatic stakes it's so kind of ripe to be exploited by the theatrical world in the nicest possible way. It's easy to kind of latch on to the kind of the symbols of military drama without doing that deeper psychological study. And so 
I think there's a risk of theatre that creates theatre or a film that creates film just replicate those patterns again and again. I've I have myself found it very frustrating being part of both worlds and wanting them to kind of match up a little bit better. And I think this project is really interesting because of how questioning it is and how it asks us to re-examine and think about how like Jonathan says, theatre can be interesting and of use to the military. If it if it feels like an honest and considerate reflection of what they might be experiencing. And, and then, of course, how the military world can create interesting drama. The world of the military has changed a lot. The dramatic stakes that we might look for in theatre, if we were to find easy drama, are not necessarily the ones that count. It's an experience that affects your daily life. And being a military partner is something that may have acute moments of anguish, but it also has a kind of some level of pain or burden just daily that you must manage. And it's interesting to see a show that looks at the different scales of that and tries to do it carefully. So Maureen, can I stay with this question of the experience of war stories, representations of war? Obviously, this plays a great opportunity to bring in a few things that maybe so far haven't been addressed or haven't been addressed enough to try and bring in new angles, which leads me to my question about existing dramatizations of war, existing representations of war, and how your personal experience, but also the work that you've been doing as part of the group on the play has influenced the way in which you're looking at existing representations of war a bit differently? Well, personally, I found it a lot easier to watch representations of war armed with this academic protection, which is I'm curious about how war is visualised rather than do I need to emotionally identify with this or not? I mean, I remember watching Zero Dark Thirty years ago and just like not speaking for a couple of hours because I was so upset and I didn't know how to marry that experience with the experience I had, which seemed so different. Now, for me, it seems kind of easier to look at them. I've been thinking as we're talking, I remember reading Wale Shoyinka's myth literature in the African world, and he writes about ritualistic African drama um, in comparison with the classical drama. And he talks about heroes as thonic challenges on behalf of the community. I love this idea that really the characters in these stories, they challenge some kind of natural law on behalf of all the people that are around watching them. That's how I see these archetypes that we're using from the classical world as people who push a certain characteristic on behalf of us and we can see. And I think we've tried to create that with our characters now. We're trying to say who are our new representations of war and who are the challenges that we could use to navigate that landscape for us. But what they are also doing within that, and those are some of my favourite moments in the show, are when the characters themselves reference watching Homeland or <laughs> the reason he joined the army is so that he could emulate a certain character or things like that. So actually being able to look directly at characters who are themselves influenced by those around them is a really interesting one. And in the way that generals have been inspired by Alexander the Great, Alec is inspired by war movies that he's seen. It's nice to be able to directly address that. I love the fact that your characters within the play are referencing this feedback loop, the fact that the stories around us in popular culture in all sorts of different media and genre shape how we think, feel and behave and our decision making and our sense of identity. Andres, can we bring you on this? What particular, are there any particular dramatizations of war on stage or screen that have influenced you in the past and do you now through working on Tempest Fugit look back on them with slightly different eyes? Yeah I was thinking about that earlier how I grew up seeing these presentations of war of the real American hero 
and maybe buying into this narrative of boys playing with guns like B, the character played by Jenny, says in play. And from having an experience that was very, it was emotionless, but it was much more based on the action film type of follower. <laughs> I rewatched the film recently called Jarhead, and the eyes I had watching it were so different from when I watched it a few years ago. And I remember coming to see it with this action film, Nostalgia, and then not getting the kick of it. Watching it now, understanding what moral injury is and what the effect of war can be. In the same way, those characters in the play are, are evolving from the beginning of the show, like Maureen was saying earlier, the way that Alex saw war before joining the military in the play was he wanted to be Martin Sheen from Apocalypse Now. And then we see his evolution to a place where his life becomes unmanageable because of the realities he faces. It's a less glamorous reality than Hollywood shows. Same for B when she meets Alec and realizes that he's going to join the military. She says, oh, boy wants to play with guns, which is also a very uninformed, Maybe not uninformed, but that's the place she is at at that moment. That's the way she visualizes military life. From that perspective of someone that sounds very anti-war, anti-military, to marrying into the military, really, that's what she ends up doing. And it's through her that we manage to evolve our own visualization of war as an audience, because she's the vehicle that shows us what is the effect of war, what are the realities of war. That's really interesting. And I love the fact with Tempest Fugit, Troy and us, you're not simply visualizing a war or a couple of wars, an ancient and a modern war, but you're helping, you're allowing an audience to see how the characters within the play, Alec and B, gradually evolve the way in which they visualize and imagine war through all sorts of different ways. And that in itself, that process, the process that we see unfold in them, helps us question and develop the ways in which we visualize war. Andres, you just mentioned a couple of things about, you know, com comparisons between films more recently and, and earlier, um, which make me want to ask a, a slightly different question now, which is about, about genre and about logistics. So in terms of, you know, staging a play in this physical space of a theatre, however it's laid out, do you think there are logistical considerations that um, affect what aspects of war get staged? I'm just remembering back to a conversation at one of our workshops that we ran, one of the Visualising War workshops, where I think one person said, you know, on a film, you can stage an entire war. On a stage, you can just show the emotional aspects of it because the scale of staging a war on stage is, 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 is too big. And, and then I think people pushed back at that. So I'd just be interested to know a little bit about whether you think the space makes a big difference to which, which bits of war get dramatised on stage. Yeah, I remember that question. And I had a chat with Maureen about this. And I really loved what she said about, like, I think she disagreed with this. And I think that the stage in theatre is only as limiting as your imagination is. And it's true that if you have the right budget, you can have 3,000 extras going at each other with swords or bayonets or machine guns or, or tanks. And you have these sound effects and you have the visual effects. It is true. You can show that. You can also not show any of that and show us the emotional impact of it. And then in theater, it's about where you want to put the focus of the audience on. And there is a million ways of portraying things. 
There is as many ways of portraying things as there are ideas, as there are people. And I think maybe when that person said that, I mean, I'm not judging that they say it. I just think that it's just a matter of uh, an exploration or uh, spending the time to explore what you want to show. Because uh, there's so many different mediums that you can use on stage from puppetry, shadow puppetry, projection to actual bodies on stage. So, so I disagree with what that person said. Yeah, I think Shakespeare kind of covered this in the prologue to Henry V, didn't he? That you can imagine the whole thing there. So, yeah, I I don't know that it's fair to say that film or theatre has more scope for the imagination. But while we've been talking, I have been thinking about genre because although the classical unities of time and space are not something we strictly adhere to now, there is something about making a piece of work that lasts an hour, two hours, that has a kind of dramatic arc to it, that, that lends itself more easily to the, the acute moments of experience. Whereas, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey are epics. They go over a long period of time and they kind of miss out some of the, the key actions for the long burning experience of hardship. And I was thinking about what are some of my favorite representations of the war I think something like Captain Corelli's Mandolin which is a really long novel with many many perspectives again has that long-term scope on what something feels like I think what we've tried to choose to do is to give our production more of a long-term journey as well um I like what you were saying Alice about uh, the idea that they are changing their visualizations over the years and I think it's more about maybe the the passage of time and the and the arc of the drama rather than the medium and the genre. When you mentioned uh, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, I immediately thought also of Tolstoy's War and Peace. And a lot of people joke that they they miss out the war bits, but that in a sense is missing <laughs> the point, isn't it? That that very 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 long novel is all about war in some ways. And this idea that we only identify war stories as being about the battles, those bits are the war, I suppose goes back to what Andres was saying, maybe big film budgets limit your understanding of, or your ability to represent war because it tempts you towards just staging an enormous battle scene with 3000 extras and an awful lot of military equipment. I think, yeah, just going with that, I mean, I think what's interesting, again, for us is we were producing something, we've been producing something that's with two people. And, okay, so, you know, we don't have the logistical capacity to get 3,000 people on or, or have that or have a building rise up and then swivel around and it become a different thing. And that's not the style. Therefore, we're not doing that kind of style. We have our bodies. We have two boxes that get used and we have a couple of stools that get used in particular ways. And that is imagination. The magic of theatre is, is a much general thing to be able to explore the war or what's happening in terms of the, the experiences around the effects of the battle and not necessarily just the battle. Now, there is an aspect to that within our production. Unlike, let's say, classic kind of thing with Euripides or Sophocles when a messenger turns up and says, this is what's happened. We don't necessarily have that aspect. We actually do show some moments. So again, that's been an interesting one for us. What, what of that do we show in terms of the modern, let's say, Hector fighting, fighting Achilles, as opposed to having Alec fighting? We don't have props, really, apart from a radio that's, uh, that's important to it. So there is an aspect of mime, of having swords and doing different, and, and using the body to be able to tell a story of a fight. It's almost easier to do a more ancient battle 
in a way and to get the magic the epicness of that in a different kind of way used particularly with the mask than it is to kind of just run about playing toy soldiers with with an imaginary gun not representing necessarily alec really there because that's not this is b's story there's b's visualization but we're still what we are doing is still at the same time you had this representation of hector fighting and that bleeding in with alec's experience as well and the choices physically of how we've actually managed to convey that that's true that we haven't chosen to be very realistic about the way uh, we are portraying alec at war maybe originally there was a couple of moments in which he was in combat or in situations that involved him carrying an imaginary gun. But it was also a time where our visualization wasn't as informed as it is now. And the process itself has taken us to be more detached from those moments and be more interested in the aftermath of those moments in terms of Alex's experience. Because by showing, and not because, but also by showing Hector's battle we are implying that that's also Alex's reality at that point in the show both narratives have crossed so much that it's clear that Hector's experience is similar to Alex's experience so by showing Hector in battle we have an understanding that that's been Alex in battle and by showing Andromache's suffering we understand that that also is B's suffering You've been talking about how you configure the different characters to bring across the different points that are important. We've been talking a bit about Alec and Achilles now, but you also said earlier that there was a bit of a development there, that the play started with a play that was sort of more male-focused, and then it gradually developed more towards a stronger female perspective. So taking what you've been saying about Alec and Achilles, could you tell us a bit more about how B became a stronger focus in the course of the, the work on the play? So I think that through the workshop that we did, where it became apparent that there is definitely a lack of female perspective. Like Maureen said, there's some good novels arising, you know, Silence of the Girls, Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad. You know, those things exist. And of course, we have the Military Wives Choir film that came out. But there's definitely a lack of military films that tell the female perspective and military theatre shows that tell the female perspective. So yeah, I suppose in the search of doing something different, not as cliched, we definitely wanted to put the focus on B. And that's not to say that we've removed Alex's importance by any stretch, because everything that he does feeds into B's life, her suffering, her endurance. I suppose that we follow her because that's lesser known and we follow her visualization of what Alec must be doing when he's away, of her experience of what it is to deal with a returning soldier, of her experience of sacrificing her, her friends, her family, her job, her career, of being isolated, of struggling with emotions while he's away. And ultimately of her battling this ever-present fear while he is away of the doorbell of, you know, these men in uniform coming to deliver bad news, this sort of military way that wives or partners are informed of a husband's death. And that's our present of the show. It's sort of be at her dressing table, listening to the radio show, waiting. And we hear the doorbell. It comes into the play at the beginning and it comes in at the end. And there is a sense of foreboding throughout. I don't think what happens is necessarily a huge surprise. 
because inevitably to be a military wife that is always going to be a possibility and that's always going to be part of your reality but what is most interesting I guess is to see the power of the female and how she can endure and how she carries on through all that in spite of everything. My personal perspective of it is that military partner is a really great person to to be the challenger on behalf of the community in terms of the question how do we visualize war because their job is essentially to visualize from the moment they consider taking on this role to the moment the worst may or may not happen and beyond because imagining what the experiences of war might be like for someone else becomes a kind of daily narrative in your head it becomes um i'm speaking for myself but i think for a lot of people it, it, it almost feels like this kind of energy drain that takes up a sort of percentage of your brain function, which is imagining and thinking about, if not this tour, a tour that might come in the future when someone's going to be sent away on exercise. You're always preparing either to be left or being left or to have a return. Although that sounds kind of pathetic because you can just get on and live your life your life is by necessity sort of commandeered by this role. And then it's something that comes and goes all the time and you have to prepare your mind for it. And it is all in your head. So I think that the kind of the partner character is a really great vehicle for this question. And you mentioned questions there. Is that one of the things that all four of you want Tempest Fugit to do? Not simply to tell another war story, but actually to open up debate, to raise questions, to, I think you mentioned the word challenge a little bit um, at one point. You know, my question to you is, what influence do you think theatre generally can have on how we understand and visualise war? And also what kind of impact do the four of you hope that Tempest Fugit, your play, will have by bringing together this ancient war story and this modern story in the way that you are doing? Well, definitely challenging the narrative of the role of families and women in the military. And of course, it comes from us not having that direct experience apart from Maureen. But I feel that we have been so well informed now that uh, I feel confident that we're opening a window into that reality. And speaking to one of those military wives, she did say that if there was one thing she would like to see that she was missing was the actual suffering of families, the reality of the families of the military people. I think that's one thing that I want the show to convey. I think it's really interesting that the way that modern British society separates the military world from the civilian world so hugely, there's a a huge gap. And you could walk down the street and unless there's a man with a missing leg that you might go, oh, maybe he was a soldier once, you'd probably never be able to know who was serving, who was a military wife. Um, You know, you, you wouldn't pick them out. And yet military wives, especially, their lives are so much of a bubble. And without their own sort of fairly insular community, I think what we've learnt is that there's a definite lack of understanding from the civilian world and probably a lack of appreciation about what they go through. It was really interesting. We were looking at some articles brought up by Emma Bridges and it was a military wife talking about how and why she left her military husband. She, she cheated on him. She, had, you know, she was unfaithful to him. And she sort of said, look, you know, I, I lost my whole identity and I admire the women that can do that and remain with their husband and be Mrs. Soldier. 
but I couldn't. And my only way out of that was seeking another relationship and finding myself again and finding validation via a man whose job I didn't have to be subsumed by. And the comments on that article were horrendous. The trolling that that poor woman got um, for her actions, you know, how how dare you uh, be unfaithful to the country's heroes? You know, you deserve to die. Like just the most horrific abuse for being honest about what is ultimately one of the hardest relationships to be in. I think people are very quick to either be totally anti-military or to be very sort of supportive of the soldiers and to just sort of commend the wives that support their soldiers, but don't really fully comprehend the sacrifices and the struggles that that entails. And I think, yeah, I think we'd really love to be able to give military wives, especially a reflection of themselves that they could say, yeah, that is me. And it is hard. And I'm glad that civilians are able to see that and equally to be able to present a performance to the civilian world to show that there are you know, there are women in our society that we probably have very little to do with that could maybe do with a bit of extra support and admiration. You know, we can watch the Military Wives Choir film and that's definitely done something, you know, that's definitely a step in, but it's obviously a very small perspective and it focuses on this whole choir thing. Well, what about the wives that aren't in those choirs? What about the wives that, that don't have that immediate community? They're probably still lacking a general civilian sense of support. Obviously, you're mentioning wives a lot, Jenny, because Alec and B, the, the way you've configured your play based around Hector and Andromache, it's very much a wife, not, not a military husband. But presumably, um, some of this will resonate also for military husbands. Um, and I, I, I find it very interesting what you're saying about this sort of this this siloing between civilian and military communities and the invisibility of the military community within the wider civilian community. It's something that a couple of our other podcast guests have brought up. So we interviewed the founder of Never Such Innocence, a project which gives children a voice on conflict, but they've particularly developed a strand which allows the children of armed forces personnel to have a voice on conflict and to sort of own their experience somewhat. And we were also talking the other day to Professor Kate McLaughlin, um, who's done a lot of research into war writing about the very anomalous position that the veteran has a sort of always teetering on the edge of being a hero and a delinquent somehow and again society civil society has a very um ambivalent attitude towards many people who either are in or on the peripheries of or have been in the military community and a lot of that is about lack of understanding of their experiences so any play that amplifies that and that brings that out and explores it is going to be you know I think really powerful. I was listening to Jenny and, and kind of thinking about the image of an iceberg really it's a role that requires very little you know over expression and and so much internal feeling and internal management of feeling visualizations expectations and I was thinking about a scene in the play which I think is probably my favorite in the whole play and it's tiny but it's the morning Alex about to leave and Bee's lying in bed and she's not really saying anything and she's sort of probably silently crying to herself as he says he's made breakfast but in that scene there's just the huge submerged section of the iceberg is is kind of present in the room of just how 
much is going on inside and how difficult it is to even talk about it because because although we live in a culture that's really good at saying how important it is to talk about things there is a need to suppress things as well in order to be able to cope and that's what she's doing and you see, and you see them both doing it and I, I find it super moving so in terms of um, obviously theatre can challenge and question and should I hope that there are these moments that inspire sympathy and understanding too to kind of go back to or to broaden the question so can theatre does it have the, I guess the power to illuminate these war stories or does it have the power to kind of change I think yes I mean I definitely think that the theatre creating stories in this way and as a live medium and bringing it out to people who not necessarily would have seen these stories or seen these narratives played out before them is a changing experience. Again, you know, for us, the kind of work that we do, we'd expect this as well. Originally, we would, we would go to uh, in Edinburgh with the Army at the Fringe, and of course, that would be for both military and civilian audiences. We would then look to probably take it on tour, and you're going into kind of regional theatres and presenting that to people who wouldn't see who have come across these stories before, and I think it can. You know, we've done work whereby we've had people crying or writing who have been very moved by the work but have had their assumptions kind of questioned it's an incredible powerful tool for change and it's different to things that are captured on film or on the or in this medium on zoom live theater is quite an intangible experience it's exhilarating kind of life affirming and questioning all at the same time and i think certainly we seek to do that with this play and theatre has always been doing that, hasn't it? From the ancient world, as Maureen was saying earlier, dramatising war and other sort of great societal issues in order to promote more conversation and discussion. Maureen, I love the fact that you mentioned the iceberg because it's an analogy that we've used um, on the podcast before and it's something that we think about a little bit in terms of the Visualising War project, this sense that um, 1% of war is visible and 99% of it is is all about imagination and guesswork and stories feed into that, but stories can can feed into that in helpful as well as sometimes distorting ways. Um, so it's been fantastic to hear how you've been wrestling with these issues with Tempest, Fugit, Troy and us. I think this project has made me question what exactly war is as well, you know, how we visualise it, but also what it means and and who's experiencing it. Is it just people fighting? Is it people who live in a society where the kind of normal rules of civilization have broken down? We can't work as society normally works and then the rules don't apply and, and all of the different people impacted by it. So through working on it, and I hope audiences get some of what we've learned from it too, but it has really thrown up that question to me and how... By looking at different visualizations of war, we can get a, a bigger understanding of what war is in, in itself. So Jenny, Jonathan, Anders and uh, Maureen, you're leaving us with a whole lot of fascinating questions to keep thinking about. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about ways in which we prepare war stories for the stage, the limits and challenges involved. Um, the ways in which they impact our own different attitudes towards war stories, thinking about war, but also how we connect stories and theater with real life and how real life is itself always an important influence on what we see on the stage. 
NMT Automatics will be helping the Visualising War project run some more workshops later this year, looking at ways in which ancient and historic war stories continue to influence modern habits of visualising war. So thank you, Jenny, Jonathan, Andres and Maureen for joining us. And thank you, listeners, also for joining us again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as we have. Do keep tuning in. Next time, we will be looking again at modern dramatizations of ancient war stories when we talk to actor and theatre producer Ewan Downey, who's the founder of theatre company Company of Wolves. And we'll be particularly talking to him about his stage representation of the Greek hero Achilles. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young and the show was mixed by Sophia Gertin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>